Hello listeners and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today's podcast was recorded here in... Jacko! Sol- what? Jacko! Ollie, Ollie, I'm doing a podcast. You I'm can't, sorry, I'm running to in interrupt. Here. I've got urgent breaking news. Oh, listeners, you are about to hear something here first, right now on the NK News Podcast. What is it, Ollie? What have you got? Well, because it's that magical time of year once again, our magical NK shop is now live. You can get all of your Christmas essentials, including NK News calendars, t-shirts, posters, all sorts of things. Is this an ad break? It is an ad break, yes, indeed. Oh, well, if you can't beat them, let's join them. Tell me more about this calendar, Ollie. Is it filled with wonderful photographs taken by the best NK News photographers? It is indeed. We have 12 wonderful photos of uh, daily life in North Korea for every month of the year. A rare glimpse, if you will. Oh, is it one picture per month or is it one of those wonky calendars where you get two months per picture? It's one picture per month. Okay, so 12 rare glimpses. 12 rare glimpses just for NK News readers. And you know what the best part is? What is it? Every cent that goes towards our NK News calendar goes towards funding NK News, funding this podcast. If you want to support the show and if you want to support the website, the best thing you can do, apart from subscribing, obviously, is buying one of these calendars. It'll look great on your office wall, on your wall at home, even the the bathroom, of course. Uh, so, Ollie, is there a uh, a code that people can use at the checkout of the NK News shop to get a discount? Uh, there is indeed. If you're a listener to the podcast, you can use the code podcast at the checkout uh, for a ten dollar discount. That's great. So, if I'm buying a T-shirt and I get a ten dollar discount, uh, it's almost like I'm getting it at two thirds of the price or something. It's wonderful. So that is nkshop.org. With and the, the code the, is podcast. The code is podcast. Hello listeners and welcome to the NK News Podcast recorded here in Tokyo on Saturday the 7th of September 2019 and today I am situated in one of Japan's smaller hotel rooms uh, joined by David Straub who is a researcher, author and commentator on Korean Peninsular Affairs and US-Korea relations. His current research is focused on the US-ROC alliance response to the North Korea problem. We'll be talking about that. Uh, David of course is a foreign service officer from 1976 to 2006 and his career in the State Department centered on Japan and Korea. He's the author most recently of the book Anti-Americanism in Democratizing South Korea. Thanks very much for joining me David Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. Uh, So let's start with, um, I guess, the easiest question. Of all the American presidents, who do you think had the best policy on North Korea? Well, particularly vis-a-vis North Korean uh, attempts to nuclearize. Well, that's a trick question because (laughs) there was no one who's uh, been able to uh, resolve the problem. Uh, But I think that in terms of... uh, Managing the issue and and trying to make progress, I would give uh, most credit to George Herbert Walker Bush and President Obama. Uh, yeah, they weren't exactly the same policies, were they? So walk us through well, that a little bit. Well, <clears throat> the policies were different, but of course the times were different as well. Uh, George Herbert Walker Bush uh, worked uh, with the South Korean president, No Tae-woo, and this was the time when there was renewed North-South uh, Korean dialogue. The basic agreement uh, was reached. The uh, nuclear agreement were reached. These were quite impressive agreements. Of course, unfortunately, uh, they were never implemented, uh, mm. especially by the North Koreans. President uh, George Herbert Walker Bush worked very closely um, as a good ally with the South Koreans, removed tactical U.S. nuclear weapons uh, from South Korea, in part to try to promote uh, the inter-Korean dialogue. Yeah, what, do you remember what year that was, that the last 
nuclear weapons were removed from the, the southern half of the Korean Peninsula? I don't remember the exact yeah. year, but I think it was during the, the administration yeah. of President Bush. And because then North Korea, of course, famously still very skeptical about that. Uh, you know, they're, they're not quite saying whether or not they believe there are still nukes in South Korea. Well, it's, I suppose it's conceivable that North Korean leaders really believe the United States uh, has tricked them and that there are nuclear weapons still in South Korea. Mm. But I, of course, it's uh, entirely in North Korea's interest, as their leaders apparently see them, to pretend that the United States has not done that. And anyway, it's a good hook for them to uh, eventually uh, press for the removal of all U.S. nuclear weapons, not only on the allegedly on the peninsula, but from around the peninsula right. uh, and in the region as well. Of course, uh, Bush won, if I could call him that. Um, there definitely were no North Korean nukes then. Right? I mean, we, uh, we know that North Korea was, was heading towards, uh, probably already had an existing nuclear program, but uh, the first nuclear test by North Korea was in 2006, so that meant that any, any policy after that would have to be very different from that which came before it. So how, how was that shift perceived, I think, in, in, in Washington policymaking? Uh, well, there was a, a long period in which the U.S. Uh, government was focused on trying to prevent North Korea from developing nuclear weapons. Um, it appears that the North Koreans uh, were, were, were moving in the direction of developing nuclear weapons from probably since 1945 when the young Kim Il-sung observed how effective only two nuclear weapons were in defeating his lifelong enemy, the Japanese Empire. But um, it became clear to uh, U.S. officials uh, in the uh, 1980s that the North Koreans might really be serious about developing nuclear mm. weapons. And so uh, from, from the period of about George Herbert Walker Bush, when we had our first diplomatic exchanges with North Korea in 1992 onward, uh, the U.S. government was focused on trying to prevent what everyone regarded as a, would be a very bad outcome, which is a country like North Korea having nuclear weapons. And, and now, of course, it has them. And, and so here we are in a, in a very different world. Um, now, some say that uh, you know what America and other countries need to do is simply accept the fact that North Korea has nukes and, uh, and live with that reality. I think those who are making that argument are either confused or have uh, an ulterior motive. The United States uh, has had three basic priorities or goals on the Korean Peninsula since uh, the Korean War. And the first goal has been, and I think still remains, to protect South Korea. And that involves deterring North Korea and uh, helping South Korea develop economically and politically. And that, so far, that has been a great success story on the part of both American foreign policy and, of course, for the people of South Korea. The second American goal, uh, ever since Harry Truman fired Douglas MacArthur in, in April of 1951, is to ensure that there is never again another Korean War, because the Americans did not do all that well in the Korean War, and it uh, was a very unpopular war. Even today, it's a war that can involve superpowers like China and, and Russia, yeah. and so it's something American policymakers have fervently wished to avoid. And then again, from about the administration of George Herbert Walker Bush, the American government focused a third, uh, uh, on a third priority, which is preventing North Korea from developing nuclear weapons. But it always remained a third priority because it was seen as more important to the United States to make sure that South Korea was preserved mm -hmm. 
um, than preventing those nuclear weapons. But now we've reached a somewhat different situation for the United States. Up until recently, there was no real immediate threat that the North Koreans could do anything other than threaten South Korea and possibly Japan. Yeah. But now North Korea says that it can attack the U.S. homeland itself with nuclear weapons. So if there is a choice for the United States between protecting South Korea and protecting the U.S. homeland, what is the U.S. going to do? I think that's a, probably a situation that the North Koreans intentionally worked to create. Mm, right. As um, one of my previous interviewees, uh, Doug Bandow, likes to, uh, to phrase it, uh, is the United States prepared to swap Seoul for San Francisco? Yes. Or vice versa? Yes. And uh, the historic answer, because we've also had that question put about the U.S. relationship to Western Europe and so forth and other allies, is yes, mm. the U.S. is prepared to do that. We're prepared to risk uh, a nuclear war. But of course, there have always been doubts, especially on, on, on the part of other allies, about whether the U.S. would actually do that. And of course, there's doubt within South Korea. And I suspect there's a great deal of doubt within the leadership of North Korea about whether the U.S. is is willing to uh, to defend an ally at the risk of, of suffering nuclear attacks itself. But I think that traditionally the U.S. was prepared to run that risk. The difference today is that we have an American president whose proclivities in terms of foreign and security policy bear very little relationship to that of all of his post-World War II predecessors. Just before we drill down into uh, President Trump and his own policy uh, mix on uh, North Korea, so do you see uh, the uh, acceptance of North Korea de facto or de jure as a uh, as a nuclear state is basically a non-starter because it is contradictory with America's first and second priorities, which are one, protect uh, and save the, the Republic of Korea, and two, uh, um, help it to uh, to grow and prosper. Yes, so... so oh, and to, to avoid a second Korean War. Yes. Uh, to, to finally answer the, the question as you originally put it, um, the United States uh, has, in addition to uh, wanting to protect and preserve South Korea and its allies, including Japan, um, has had since, uh, since it developed its own nuclear weapons, a very uh, strong and consistent policy of nuclear non-proliferation. The idea that a country like North Korea would be able to develop nuclear weapons is something that uh, tends strongly to undermine the nuclear non-proliferation regime. Now, the U.S. has not been successful in getting North Korea not to uh, develop nuclear weapons or to give them up. It's left with uh, it, what is it going to do in response? And uh, up until now, American president's response was, well, they may have nuclear weapons, but we're not going to, quote-unquote, accept that as being legitimate. If you accepted North Korea's having nuclear weapons, that would, I think, almost by definition mean we would no longer uh, apply sanctions and, and other uh, mm. steps against North Korea to show our displeasure. Uh, I think that would be a disaster because uh, imagine how bad uh, North Korea is treating South Korea today when the South Korean government uh, so wants to have engagement with it. And the uh, will the North Koreans behave better towards South Korea when they're accepted as a nuclear weapons state? 
Well, perhaps, but I think uh, the likeliest uh, scenario is that the North Koreans would in increasingly use their possession of nuclear weapons as a bludgeon to try to force South Korea to negotiate and deal with it on its terms. Mm -hmm. And I think the South Koreans over the long term would not prepare, be prepared to do that. The South Koreans uh, would probably want to develop their own nuclear weapons. Uh, the Japanese also, as a result of such developments, would want to develop their own nuclear weapons, perhaps even other countries. Meanwhile, we have countries like Iran and perhaps future Irans that would look at a situation in which the United States, have, after having so long fought to keep North Korea from being accepted as a nuclear weapon state, suddenly gave up. Mm, yeah. um, and of course, uh, that would be a strategic disaster for the U.S. and for the world. Of course, for Donald Trump, it would be very difficult to sell politically uh, because he has taken this extremely strong view against Iran, which doesn't even have nuclear weapons yet. Uh, while and he, says it doesn't want them. And says it doesn't want them, whether that's true well, or that's not, true I, I don't yeah. know. But North Korea quite clearly does have nuclear yeah. weapons. So let's, let's return now to, uh, to President Trump. Well, how do you rate his, his policy on North Korea? Is there a single definable, discernible policy on North Korea? I think there's a very strong tendency in the uh, uh, American and foreign media to treat Donald Trump as a, more or less a normal president. And I understand the reasons for doing that. But as an American citizen, as someone concerned about the Korean Peninsula situation and the world in general, I think it's important uh, to call a spade a spade. And I think the emperor has no clothes. I think Donald Trump doesn't have the foggiest notion about what, he, uh, what he's doing. I, I don't think it would be accurate to say that he has a North Korea policy. I think he has a, an accumulation of attitudes and buzzwords which do not constitute a, any, in any sense a coherent policy, nor has he been consistent in implementing any, any sort of an approach to North Korea. He has veered from threatening basically an all-out war on North Korea to, doing, to making unprecedented concessions to North Korea in terms of meeting with its leader and uh, praising him and his, his leadership and uh, uh, reducing or ending combined military exercises with our ally South Korea. Okay, let's just focus on him uh, meeting with uh, the leader of North Korea. I remember back in in 2000 uh, during the, uh, the election campaign which saw uh, George W. Bush elected to the presidency, there was a, a period when it seemed possible, maybe even likely, that uh, President Bill Clinton would uh, make a visit to, uh, to Pyongyang to meet with uh, the now late uh, Kim Jong-il. Um, so what do you think about, just in general, uh, American presidents meeting with the leader of, of uh, a country like North Korea? It's quite problematic. Um, problematic especially because um, the North Korean regime uh, is really a horrible, horrible regime. And for the president of the United States personally to meet with the leader of that country has significant implications in terms of um, providing legitimacy to such behavior, um, among many other things. Uh, nevertheless, there, there may be times when it's necessary for an American president to meet with such leaders. 
in World War II, President Roosevelt not only met with, but yeah. was an ally of Joseph Stalin, right. who um, certainly in terms of the quantity of atrocities he committed, uh, committed far more than Kim Jong-un has, uh, at least so far. President that, Nixon visited China. President Nixon visited China, which saw, uh, which had, uh, whose leadership had saw over the death of millions and millions of Chinese uh, uh, at their responsibility. But, or, or so, um, there, there may be reasons uh, that it may be necessary for an American president to meet, negotiate uh, with such leaders. But, at a minimum, one should carefully prepare uh, for such meetings uh, so that one knows that uh, at least there is some benefit to be gained by them. President Trump did not do that. He's, he's not known as a, not known for being a great reader or a love, having a love of reading long texts. Is that the only way to prepare for things, for meetings like that? Or can it just be, you know, listening to advisors say things and then picking your own way? I mean, what kind of preparation is needed for for a, for meeting with someone like Kim Jong-un? Well, there are d different kinds of preparations that are needed for such important events. Um, of course, the president personally needs to be as well informed mm -hmm as possible. And that's not an easy thing for any president because the president of the United States is responsible for a huge number of not only external problems, but of course domestic problems. And he also has to pay a great deal of attention to the politics in the United States of all of these sorts of things. But uh, yes, a president doesn't have to read anything. A president uh, can talk with many, many advisors and, and receive briefings and be just as well informed or nearly as well informed as someone who's very studious like President Obama was. Mm. Um, another level of preparation, though, is a preparation done by those people working for the president. And what that means in foreign affairs is that a president almost never intervenes, especially publicly, in, in problems until the people he has appointed uh, uh, do a great deal of legwork. They meet with the other side. They usually have virtually everything agreed before the two presidents meet. This is what we call working-level talks. So-called working-level talks. It's a very vague term. In mm. fact, the, the levels involved go from just below the president on down to the very bottom. Uh -huh. So it's really everything except for the top. Exactly, uh -huh. yes. People have said that, you know, that President Trump is, I don't know, he's, either he's experimenting or he's modeling or trying out a, uh, a new form of top-down diplomacy because perhaps that's what's required with North Korea. What do you think about that? Well, that would be like me who can't even sing uh, Merry Christmas in tune, uh, going to uh, Carnegie Hall and trying to perform a concert on the grand piano. <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> he, this is, it's ridiculous. President Trump is, uh, is, uh, doing all of this with essentially no knowledge of the situation and with no appreciation for the foreign and security policies that all of his predecessors have pursued. But as much as there haven't been any nuclear tests since, I think, late 2017, there haven't been any provocation shooting across the border, uh, no new Americans have been uh, held hostage for a while. These sound like pluses to, to many people. Uh, if, if that were the end state, mm. those would be significant pluses. But it's not the end state. This is just a phase in a long-term process. Uh, the North Koreans uh, are not stupid. They're just as smart as you or I. And the North Koreans are quite well informed about the United States. I think their judgment is 
is often very skewed by the nature of the system and by the attitudes that they hold about the U.S. and the rest of the world. But they're very well informed, and they're also very calculating about this issue because it's very important to them. And so they, I'm quite confident, see President Trump as a useful idiot. Uh, I think they believe that if they can negotiate exclusively with him, they have a chance of winning the entire game. And I think that's the strategy that they're pursuing. Do you think that's a likely winning strategy? It's unlikely, but it, the possibility can't be ruled out. Donald Trump will still be president for, what, a little over uh, a year and a half or, or so, and he could even be president for more than five years if he wins re-election. Uh, if he does win re-election, I think there's a significant chance that the North Korean strategy may work because President Trump has made clear that... Um, he doesn't care if North Korea threatens our allies as long as it doesn't uh, obviously threaten the United States. Now, you were uh, yourself a, a diplomat for 30 years in the, uh, the State Department, and you, you left in, in 2006. What, do I remember correctly that that was because of your opposition to uh, the then administration's uh, policy on uh, the Iraq war? Essentially, yes. In 2000, by the year 2004, I was just so frustrated and sick to my stomach about the foreign policy of the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I didn't like the Bush administration's implement, uh, policy toward North Korea and its implementation, and that was frustrating. I didn't disagree fundamentally with George W. Bush's skepticism about North Korea and its leadership, but I thought he was quite stupid and ham-handed in the way he dealt with South Korea and the, the way his diplomacy was presented to towards North Korea. It made the United States look like the bad guy in the scenario, and you have to be pretty inept if you're a partner, if you're on the stage with North Korea, and North Korea looks like the good guy, and you mm. look like the bad guy. So I was frustrated with North Korea, but I was most upset with Iraq. I saw, uh, even before we invaded, I, I personally was very opposed to it, and when I saw the disaster that uh, the U.S. caused to the people of Iraq by this uh, ridiculous invasion, this atrocious invasion, I wanted to, no longer to be a part of it. And to be fair, I, I'm not a martyr or anything. I, I had already reached re, uh, retirement age. Mm -hmm. I could uh, retire with a full pension, which I needed because I was not born independently wealthy. So psychologically, if you don't have to do something and you find doing what you're doing distasteful, people do what I do and they leave. And that, so that's what I did. Well, I asked that question as a, as a lead into uh, what would you, uh, how would you advise current diplomats who are working in the U.S. State Department who are um, uh, troubled or uncomfortable with uh, the current policy on North Korea? Uh, how can they best influence policy in a good direction or should they just uh, try to get out? When I joined the State Department, and I suspect even now, uh, one of the things we are told in our orientation is that if you if it, you ever reach a point where you're not able in good conscience to uh, do what you're instructed to do, then the honorable thing is to step down. Mm. Um, and uh, I think that's the right advice. 
Um, now, for many young people in the Foreign Service uh, with families and uh, need to earn a living and so forth, um, I think that's very difficult to do, and I understand that perfectly. One can try to do whatever one can, uh, given one's position, to try to ameliorate the situation. Um, if it gets too bad, then I think people do need to stand up in some fashion and say, this is wrong. You probably read that, um, gosh, it, it was a long, was it a letter or an op-ed piece in the New York Times from written from somebody within the, the Trump administration kind of talking about, uh, I don't know, how would you describe it, a, a group of people within the administration who were trying to work against it, its policies in some ways. Uh, did, do you think that was uh, a good idea? Yes, I, I, no one knows yet, or very few people know yet, who mm. that person was, whether that was a political appointee, right. uh, someone appointed by Trump himself or one of Trump's appointees, or whether that was a, a senior bureaucrat. It was a very strange letter. Um, I think the more honorable thing to do usually is to resign one's position and then speak out. I, I find it troubling that a number of otherwise intelligent and uh, people of integrity who served uh, President Trump Trump, such as former Secretary of State Tillerson, uh, former National Security Advisor, what's his name? Mattis? Uh, uh, Mattis. Uh, not Mattis. Oh, sorry. Uh, um, <laughs> McMaster. McMaster. Uh, and former Defense Secretary Mattis uh, have not spoken out. Um, mm. Given that Trump is such a disaster as uh, the leader of the United States uh, foreign and security policies, I think these people have an obligation to their country in these very unusual circumstances to to speak out. But the letter that that was published in the New York Times uh, anonymously is mm. a very strange sort of thing. Of course, there is an argument that one can make that if you have a president as disastrous as uh, President Trump, then uh, you know someone has to be working in the government and it would be better to have people of conscience uh, who are doing what they can to manage the situation rather than to have people who are exclusively uh, uh, sycophants to President Trump. But uh, I, and I think many Americans who've worked in government found that to be an odd approach. What's your impression of, uh, of how Steve Began is doing in his job as, uh, what's his type now, special... Oh, yeah. Something like an envoy or yes. something for negotiations. Um, uh, I've never met Mr. Began. By all accounts, he is uh, as an intelligent um, person, experienced in American politics and government, uh, and want someone who's taken his new responsibility seriously. Mm. Unfortunately, uh, the North Koreans have not been really prepared to meet with him. I think for months now, he doesn't even know who his uh, who would who would be his North Korean counterpart. Mm -hmm. So he's not been able to do very much, at least directly with the North Koreans. But I think there's a broader issue here, uh, and this is not a criticism at all of Mr. Began, but uh, in the U.S. government and many other countries as well, the political leadership change every four or eight years in the United States. Yeah. And even our bureaucrats who are doing such things as negotiating with North Korea change every two or four years or something like right. that. In my long experience dealing with or watching the North Koreans, they, of course, have sort of like the old Stalinist system where their diplomats stay basically in place forever working on a particular problem. Yeah, they age out eventually. Exactly. And... The North Koreans uh, who are working uh, on the North, the U.S. issue and the, the nuclear issue are intelligent people who've been carefully selected by the leadership for their intelligence, for their 
loyalty to the system, and they stay in those jobs for many years, if not decades. Uh, and again, in my experience, uh, they know far more about these issues than their American counterparts mm. because the Americans change so frequently. So again, no criticism at all of Mr. Began as an individual, but he started this uh, position with very little knowledge about the North Korean nuclear issue. You know, even if he negotiated three or four years, he would really just then really begin to understand the North Korean problem. For most issues and for most countries uh, who are our counterparts, the way we do things works fine, but for a problem like North Korea, it doesn't work. Did you uh, see or read his, um, the text of his speech that he gave at, uh, at Stanford uh, last year, in which he kind of talked about you know, the way ahead with North Korea? Uh, I did. It was some time ago when I read it. Actually, I think it was early this year, maybe, but certainly mm. within the last 12 months. Uh, I did, um, and I think it was well-intentioned, mm. but uh, again, um, the product of someone who has not dealt with the North Koreans, it, uh, I think, as I recall, he assumed that if uh, it was at least worth trying to uh, deal with the North Koreans in the way that we've dealt with them for many years now, decades now, and I think experience has shown that that approach is not going to work. That's not an argument for to, to say we should not talk to the North Koreans or we should not negotiate with the North Koreans. But I think uh, we should at this point be able to conclude that the North Koreans were basically never serious about giving up nuclear weapons mm -hmm. and that they have used the negotiating process as a way to stall, prevaricate, find cover to continue the development of the nuclear missile programs that they regard as vital for their interest. One doesn't have to be absolutely certain about those assumptions, but I think those are fairly safe assumptions. And the alternative assumptions, I think, are, are, are very problematic and, and naive even. Well, let's look at a couple of quotes that I got here. So last week we had uh, the current U.S. Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, he, he said in a, uh, a speech that uh, he recognized that North Korea's rogue behavior could not be ignored. And then in response to that, I guess, uh, the uh, Vice Foreign Minister of uh, North Korea, uh, Che Son-hee, uh, issued an angry press statement uh, in which she said, amongst other things, that Pompeo had, quote, provoked us again by making us, uh, provoked us once again by making an irrational remark. And our expectations for dialogue with the U.S. have been fading gradually. And if the U.S. has been pushing, uh, and it rather, has been pushing us to the situation where we are compelled to review all the measures that we have taken until now. Uh, do you take this as a sign that uh, North Korea doesn't even want to start working level talks? It's quite clear that the North Koreans don't want to start working level talks. Because, and why is that? Because they haven't. Uh, for months now, Steve Began has yeah. publicly and privately apparently offered to, to begin talks at any time, and the North Koreans have, have consistently not done this. So this goes back again to Donald Trump. I think it's quite clear that the North Koreans think they have the best shot to get the best outcome as they see it by dealing exclusively with Donald Trump. Uh, and in that, they're probably right. I don't think they will succeed, but uh, compared to dealing with the U.S. bureaucracy, which uh, even under Trump tends to, mo to the more traditional uh, approach to U.S. foreign and security policy, um, they would do much better. That is, the North Koreans would do much better by dealing with, with Donald Trump. Well, then shouldn't they be hurrying? I mean, let, let's say, you know, I mean, North Korea can't be, uh, you know, they're not clairvoyants, they can't be uh, guaranteed uh, that he'll be re-elected uh, in November next year. So shouldn't they be 
be rushing to some kind of a deal now while he's still in, in the White House? Well, they, they have kind of a, a contradiction to deal with. Um, on the one hand, they see Donald Trump uh, sitting down with Donald Trump as their best opportunity. On the other hand, even Donald Trump is not going to sit down with them all the time, especially if he thinks that he's going to look feckless uh, and be criticized severely for it. He's been able to get away with it uh, for a while, uh, despite the fact that none of his uh, summits were actually successful. And in fact, they were, if they were successful, they were successful for the North Koreans. But he can't, even he is probably perceptive enough to realize that he can't get away with doing that indefinitely. So how do the North Koreans get a meeting with Donald Trump and get what they want from him while avoiding the working level preparatory talks, which even Donald Trump probably agrees to some extent are necessary before he meets with them. How do they do that? I don't know. That's very tough. Mm -hmm. uh, I suspect that uh, they will continue to send nice long letters on right. big, big stationery to Donald Trump saying what a wonderful man he is. Meanwhile, trying, uh, avoiding answering Steve Began. Meanwhile, publicly berating all of the president's own political appointees, such as Secretary of State Pompeo and National Security Advisor John Bolton. They may, in addition, this is just a guess, uh, they, of course, have been testing these uh, multiple t new types or, or types of uh, short-range and, and medium-range missiles to put, uh, in part, to put pressure on the U.S. and its allies. And they may feel that at some point they need to increase the distance uh, of those missiles uh, to put Donald Trump under even more pressure. But of course, the North Koreans are not, in, uh, not stupid, they're not ignorant, and they are probably concerned that they don't, they don't know what Donald Trump will do if they take step X, mm. for, uh, particularly a new step. So if they, at this point, launch a longer range missile that goes way over Japan towards the middle of the Pacific, mm -hmm. Will that prompt Donald Trump to sit down with them and give them what he what they want, or will it cause Donald Trump to revert to his ridiculous and, and appalling uh, threats to you know wage all-out war on North Korea? Yeah, the fire and fury era. Yes. Okay. Well, let's talk about the uh, the state of the the Rock U.S. Uh, chorus alliance um, between yeah South Korea and the United States. How are things going? How do you see it? This is uh, the area that you're currently researching. So, uh, I think U.S.-South Korean relations are troubled. Um, it's not very evident on the surface. Traditionally, the United States has usually spoken well of its allies in public and minimized discord with its allies um, in, in, in its public rhetoric. And uh, South Korea, under President Moon, uh, is also downplaying any discord in the alliance. Uh, I think President Moon himself, who comes from the, um, the activist uh, movement uh, of the 1970s and 80s, is, uh, like many people from that movement, very skeptical of the United States. Uh, but on the other hand, he is a pragmatic politician in many respects. And he understands that a, a strong majority of the people of South Korea regard the U.S. as a security blanket. They don't want to see the alliance end anytime soon. And so Mr. Moon finds it politically expedient 
to talk constantly of how strong and important the U.S. alliance is and uh, to uh, poo-poo uh, any criticism that he has taken actions that might uh, serve to undermine the alliance. You say he's, uh, he's skeptical of the U.S. Would you go further? Do you think he's actually anti-U.S.? Is he anti-American at heart? Anti-Americanism is a, is a loaded term. Mm. It's very controversial, and, and once one uses it, then it becomes a shouting match, and people are usually talking about different things. Rather than say he's anti-American, I would again say that he his formative experiences, being a member of a movement that was quite anti-American, which regarded the U.S. role in the world and on the Korean Peninsula in particular to have been highly negative in many respects, and a belief that uh, South Korea has been drugged around by the United States and that in some respects the U.S. does not secure South Korea's security, but endangers it. And so I think he shares, Mr. Moon shares many of those attitudes to this day. He will not say that publicly and probably shares it only uh, in private with his closest intimates. But I think that he also believes that over the long term, uh, South Korea will do much better if it can forge some sort of relationship with North Korea become less close to the U.S. and become somewhat closer to China. But uh, let me uh, try to uh, pose a, a different picture here, that uh, President Moon, some of his uh, formative experiences were when he was in the Special Forces and it was, in fact, um, involved in Operation Paul Bunyan back in, I forget the exact year, I always get it wrong, is it 76, 75, mm-hmm. after the axe murder incident of Panmunjom? One of those years. Yeah, don't yeah. ask me dates. Okay, but it, so he was uh, he was there as part of that response to uh, to North Korean aggression, uh, and that they've all, those experiences also have formed his uh, you know uh, his his worldview and and uh, and who he is today. That he's and I could be uh, a diplomat working in uh, the State Department of George W. Bush, and yet not be at all sympathetic to his foreign policy. So. Uh, President Moon at that time was a young soldier. He, he did what he was instructed to mm-hmm. do. I doubt that um, that uh, that experience had any significant impact. But also, his, his parents were, um, you know, refugees fleeing from uh, from North Korea during the war. Yet he was born on Kojedo in, in a refugee camp, I think. Yet, yet he has uh, close relatives living in North Korea to this day, and so I think he uh, looks at North Korea in a more fraternal way than most outsiders would imagine. When he visited Washington some time ago, didn't he meet with some Korean War veterans and thank them for uh, their service? That is the traditional thing for American, uh, for South Korean presidents to do. For President Moon, I think that is part of his pragmatic uh, approach, which is that uh, to the South Korean public, you have to show that you're being a steward of the U.S.-ROK alliance. I doubt that he has any great personal gratitude to those veterans. Hmm. In 2004, I met with some uh, U.S. Department of Defense civilians who were working here in South Korea who told me that they were at that time very concerned about the U.S.-ROK alliance because of um, uh, President Norma Hyun at that time. They said that uh, working level uh, cooperation uh, between the ROC military and the American military uh, was at an all-time low, uh, that sometimes they couldn't even find counterparts to answer their phone calls or to talk to. Is it worse now? Is it better now? Is it a different picture now? It's different now. But, of course, recall that President No's top lieutenant is now President Moon. President uh, No 
was even more passionate about his uh, skepticism about the United States. Up until 10 years before he was elected president, he called for the withdrawal of U.S. forces from Korea. And I, I, from my own personal experience on the ground at that time, I'm quite confident that um, President No continued the alliance as much as he did only because he knew that as a practical matter he needed the support or at least the non-opposition of the George W. Bush administration in order to try to pursue South Korea's engagement of North Korea. Okay, but now President Moon is certainly not, uh, I don't recall him asking or even speculating about the departure of U.S. troops from the uh, the Korean Peninsula. I don't know if he in the past, uh, as a private citizen, what he said. Um, and he, I, not as president, though. As president, I don't. Or even as candidate. As president think. and as a candidate, I don't think he's ever said anything close to that. As pre- as candidate and president, uh, President uh, Noe uh, Hyun also didn't say anything like that for the same domestic political reasons. Mm. And also, again, uh, similarly, because the priority of both men is the relationship with North Korea. And uh, as a practical matter, a South Korean president can't be on really bad terms with the American. Americans and and hope to make much progress on the North Korean issue. Do you see the uh, the Moon administration um, squashing or silencing voices of dissent? I do. The Moon administration, from the very beginning, has uh, gone after uh, its political enemies with investigations, uh, prosecutions, and then subsequent sentencing uh, on a level that I don't think has taken place in Korea since Chun Doo-hwan staged a coup uh, mm. in 1980. Now, I can't, I'm not absolutely sure, certain of that. Uh, in the nature of the thing, one doesn't have the statistics about who exactly was persecuted for political reasons and who simply because the prosecution genuinely believed the person had uh, committed illegal acts. But it's a, one of the great untold stories in the Western media about just how much political revenge is underway in South Korea under uh, President Moon. Now, uh, you yourself uh, worked for a, uh, a think tank here in South Korea that is uh, uh, funded or controlled or both but by, gov- by the government in some way. Uh, how was that experience? Well, I, I was uh, working at the Sejong Institute uh, a year or so ago, or a year, a couple of years ago, and uh, so you, did you start there before President Moon was? Uh, yes, I, I, st- I started working at the Sejong Institute as a visiting uh, researcher in, I believe it was uh, March of 2017, mm-hmm. um, and I got caught up in. Uh, well, there are a couple of uh, things at work. Uh, I uh, was asked by the uh, chairman of the board at the time, uh, who was a longtime uh, friend of mine, a former senior South Korean diplomat, to come and be a visiting researcher for a year or two. And uh, I, I uh, since at the time I didn't have a position and I liked living in South Korea, and uh, I liked my friend, I said yes. And um, so I came to Korea, and uh, during that first year, Park Geun-hye was impeached, mm. and President Moon came to power. I, as you can tell, I'm quite skeptical about North Korea and critical of the progressives, South Korean progressives' uh, uh, attitudes about uh, the North Korea problem. And uh, I was quite frank about uh, my, with my criticism and my concern uh, while I was at Sejong in, in both uh, my writings. I did a column for a local newspaper uh, and, and elsewhere. And 
I think uh, the, the, the combination of that with the fact that the person who was largely responsible for inviting me was also a person who had spent um, a year working in the uh, Park and Hay Blue House. Mm made him a political enemy, and he was actually uh, prosecuted for this whitelist, blacklist scandal. So I think even if I had not uh, been as critical of the Moon administration's North Korea policy, uh, not only would uh, my friend have been removed from his position as the chairman of the board, but they would, the new leadership would probably have hope to see me gone. But I think the combination of that political aspect with the fact that I was openly critical of the Moon policy uh, made me an enemy of the state. Uh, the uh, first thing that the new uh, chairman of the board, who was clearly appointed uh, with the uh, at either at the instruction or with the approval of the Moon administration, uh, he got rid of me. Did you see any uh, um, direct evidence of, of somebody being told, get rid of David Straub? No, there's, there's uh, well, not not uh, at the political level, mm. uh, but I, I do have fairly good information as to some of the people who were, talk, who were involved in uh, having me disinvited from spending a second year at Sejong University. And they are people in the progressive movement who are, at least one of whom is close to the Moon administration, the other who's not that close to the Moon administration, but is close to other progressives. Was this all happening around the same time that there were, uh, well, heads rolling, shall we say, at the Korea Institute at uh, Johns Hopkins University? I don't remember the exact timing, but I think it's uh, it's probably part of a piece. Mm. But uh, I think you recently did a podcast interview yes, with Robert Gallucci, yeah. who was chairman of the board of that institute in the United States, and even he says he doesn't quite to this day, know exactly why uh, the, the South Korean authorities has had a problem mm. with, with his institute. But I suspect that it was, it was after the Moon administration came to power. And it was very odd because unlike me, the, uh, the American institute involved, uh, for the most part, was actually quite supportive editorially of the Moon administration's North Korea policy. That's what I thought. Yeah. So they seem to be shooting themselves in the foot. So it's a bit puzzling. And also, I mean, even, even even with your, your skepticism and, uh, and critical notes, I mean, I, I, I hardly think you were the most radical of, of anti-moon voices. I'm a very small fish, but I'm fairly well known within the South Korean foreign and security establishment as because I was in South Korea for so long or working on South Korea so long. And I'm one of the few Americans who speak, you know, fairly good Korean, so I, I've spoken in Korean with many Koreans left and right over the years. So I'm fairly well known. And uh, again, I, I uh, was quite harshly critical, to be fair, at, mm. at times. Again, to be fair, I think it's human nature. Uh, politicians and leaders are human beings just like, like everyone else. And I found, in my experience, one would think that politicians who are criticized so much and so fiercely uh, would be pretty thick-skinned. But in my experience, most politicians are just as thin-skinned as any of us. Uh, I, so I think I'm confident that I was uh, regarded um, as an enemy of the Moon administration. And because of the, this almost unique situation I was in, of having been a, so involved 
uh, are so in the Korean scene for a long time, even at a low level, that um, I was a particular thorn mm-hmm. in the side for the new leadership. And I think the Moon administration is sincere about its attitude and policy toward North Korea. They, they fervently believe what they believe, and they really, really want to uh, accomplish this uh, fantastical reconciliation with that regime in North Korea. And so when someone like me comes and says, here the emperor has no, cl- has no clothes on either, that's quite painful, I imagine. So are the, the South Korean uh, progressives, the pro-engagers with North Korea, are they simply naive and misled people? You, you said that they're sincere. I, I think that uh, many of the progressives um, have attitudes about North Korea that were formed when they were young people, when they were uh, college students and uh, early in their adult career. And uh, human beings are powerfully shaped by those those experiences, and they tend to change their attitudes very little, and if so, usually slowly. And I don't think that uh, President Moon and his intimates have really changed their attitudes all that much since the, the, about the U.S. And, and North Korea since the 1980s. So what's your hope for the future then, both in South Korea and in terms of the the U.S. and South Korean alliance? I hope to avoid the worst. One of the President uh, Obama was actually criticized by a lot of people saying that the first rule of politics and diplomacy is don't do stupid stuff. And uh, actually it was a very appropriate thing to say because... uh, uh, for the, over the past uh, few years before that, the United States had done some incredibly stupid and damaging things. Uh, we we uh, invaded a country uh, that we didn't need to invade, making not only a disaster for the people of that country, but seriously worsening the security situation uh, for the United States and many other countries in the world. And just a few years later, by not just the Republicans, but also the Democrats' lack of seriousness and attention, we had one of the worst economic or financial crises um, that uh, we've had in, in, a, in a long, long time. So we made the United States look like uh, an idiot in the eyes of the world, both uh, in the security sphere and uh, in the economic sphere. So again, we should try to avoid doing stupid stuff. So Always a good motto to live by. It really is. And uh, on the Korean Peninsula, or regarding the Korean Peninsula, that means that the United States should revert to its traditional policy of uh, doing everything reasonable to avoid another war on the mm. Korean Peninsula. But in particular, it means that Donald Trump should shut up about you know launching an attack on North Korea. Uh, that only plays into the North Korean hands. It plays into their narrative that they are the victim, that they are not the active agent, that they are the passive victim of this imperialist, violent U.S. When in fact, if you look at the history of uh, the U.S. policy toward Korea, since the uh, since 1951, the U.S. policy has been to, as I said, to avoid a war and. All of the acts of war committed on the Korean Peninsula since uh, the end of the Korean War have been committed by the North Korean side, never by the United States, and probably very rarely, if ever, by the South Korean side. So avoid the bad things. Don't go to war. On the other hand, don't just give in to North Korea. When people say, well, we must accept North Korea as they are, what does that mean? We don't have to accept... uh, a murderer for being a murderer. 
we have to take the appropriate response. And in North Korea's situation, uh, case of North Korea, that means we do not accept them as a legitimate nuclear weapon state, which means that we will not remove sanctions, we will not lessen their diplomatic isolation, as long as they are behaving what is in fact a rogue state. That's not demonizing North Korea, that's calling out North Korea for what it has actually demonstrably done over the preceding years and decades. So, avoid the worst, and then try where one can to ameliorate the situation. Again, there are times and places where we should talk with the North Koreans, we should negotiate with them on certain issues, um, we should do so with much better information, much more experienced officials, and much better leadership. Well, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in the next couple of years, won't it? It certainly will. Thank you very much for talking to me today, David Straub. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Same here. Thank you very much. Costs involved in the production of this podcast were partially funded by the Uni Korea Fund, for which we are extremely grateful.